0: I'm pleased to have with me Dan Pat, a former DARPA program manager and deputy director for the Strategic Technology Office, and currently a fellow at the Hudson Institute, and Brian Clark, director of the Defense Concepts and Technology Center at the Hudson Institute, and he was a former Navy officer. Dan, Brian, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks Eric. for having us, Eric. Great. So I'd like to have you guys start by explaining what I see as basically integrative levels, starting from a broad conceptual level and then kind of moving our way down to implementation. So first, can you start with Mosaic Warfare? You guys basically wrote what I would consider a short book on the subject. So can you give uh, our audience an introduction to that concept, Mosaic Warfare?
1: Sure, Eric. The, um, The concept is right now we're facing a situation in which U.S. forces, when they deploy overseas, are gonna largely be at a disadvantage in the way that they currently operate and where they currently package their forces. Countries like China and Russia have gone to school on us. They've learned our advantages and disadvantages. They've created systems of systems that are designed to attack our own systems of systems. Uh, and they're the home team in a fight where we're the away team. So we have all kinds of constraints and limitations on us as the away team. Present with this uh, situation, we're at a significant disadvantage going forward. So we need a new way of fighting, a new way of organizing our forces, in order to regain an advantage against these great power competitors, and also potentially deter them from future conflict. So the idea is that with Mosaic Warfare is that we take our force structure of today, which is organized largely around large manned multi-mission platforms or monolithic platforms because they're self-contained, they have everything they need inside of them uh, to conduct military operations, uh, we need to transition from that format force design towards a force design where our forces are distributed over a larger number of platforms. So our functions are broken down, and we uh, instead of having a large, single multi-mission platform, we have multiple smaller, less expensive, and less multifunctional platforms. So we're breaking up the force and disaggregating it in that fashion. What that does is it creates a lot more adaptability for our forces. Uh, And it creates more complexity for an adversary like China or Russia to be able to diagnose and understand. That slows down their decision cycle, degrades their ability to make smart decisions. And at the same time, it affords U.S. forces the ability to make faster decisions and more effective decisions because they've got a larger set of choices to select from in terms of how they can configure this larger collection of less multifunctional platforms. So to think of it as like the, the Lego model for force deployment, rather than the Death Star model of uh, force deployment. And the LEGO model gives you a lot more options and a lot more flexibility, whereas the Death Star model is always going to have itself a few trash chutes or exhaust ports that you can attack and maybe get some kind of uh, effect on the, the center of gravity of that Death Star. So that's that's the model that we're going for with Mosaic War. Can you
0: just expand a little bit? Because in your paper, you had... A lot of good information on just war gaming and what you expect, theoretically at least, to kind of come out from, you know, the speed and complexity of operations in Mosaic versus traditional.
1: That's a that's a great question because one of the concerns we had was, well, are we just drinking our own bathwater? And we've created this idea that the Lego Force will beat the Death Star, but we've not really played it out to see if we're going to be able to get the kind of decision superiority out of the Lego Force, out of the Mosaic Force that we were hoping to get. And do we really impose the kind of complexity on the opposing side, uh, on the red side, that would allow us to potentially slow down or degrade their decision cycle? So we did a series of war games last year uh, where we put a mosaic team, so a set of uh, teams that uh, use a mosaic-like force. So a force that's got a much larger number of smaller objects and units in it. So... Uh, Unmanned systems are one element of that, and also smaller fire teams and smaller ground units than we have in today's force. And then we put them up against a red team, and at the same time, we compared them with a more traditional force doing the same operation against the same red team. And so to be able to get a sense of the the different performance characteristics of these two forces, mosaic versus traditional. We had six hypotheses, and what we found was that uh, within these hypotheses, the Mosaic force performed better than the traditional force. So the first hypothesis was that our Mosaic force commanders would get comfortable with this idea that I've got this very large distributed force, and I'm going to use computer-aided tools to formulate courses of action for it to be employed, and then I'm going to execute those courses of action without having the same kind of planning staff and planning cycle that I would have today, which can take days at this point. Air tasking order cycle is on the course of a day and a half. So the the idea was, that can a a commander get comfortable with this idea of making decisions much more quickly, relying on computer-aided tools? And so we found that in the course of the games, the the commanders did get more comfortable with that idea as they got more uh, history with it, as they got more experience with it, and and it seemed to perform okay in the game. The second hypothesis was, uh, can we create more complexity for the adversary by virtue of this more disaggregated force? Uh, And we found also in those games that we did. So the traditional force compared to the Mosaic force was much less complex. It offered the uh, enemy lots of opportunities to be able to take it apart by attacking the networks, by attacking the logistics, by attacking the command and control platforms, because they were all readily identifiable and were not moving around that much. And they didn't change how they operated in the context of the, the war game. Whereas with the Mosaic Force, there were lots of different platforms that could provide command and control. There were lots of different platforms that could do logistics. Logistics was much less of importance. Uh, when you've got smaller units that don't require the same level of fuel or energy that that a previous uh, traditional platform may have required. So the complexity, meaning the number of different ways a force can compose itself, was much higher for this mosaic force than for the traditional force, which was much smaller. The next hypothesis that we had was, well, can we more effectively uh, pursue our strategy? Is the commander going to be able to get to his objective more quickly, and can he do so with lower losses or less? less important losses than than the traditional team. And we found that in that case, that was also true. So the mosaic force was able to incur, although it incurred more losses, those losses were in a much uh, less expensive and mostly unmanned set of platforms that it could sustain while it continued the operation. So the losses didn't impact the ability of the mosaic force to achieve its objective. And because the force was distributed over a larger number of objects, the computer-rated tools the commanders have to develop courses of action, we're able to calibrate the level of force very finely to the task at hand. So you could spread your force out over a larger number of tasks, you know, like peanut butter over a slice of bread. You can spread that force over a larger number of tasks compared to today's force where it comes in these large units of issue like aircraft carrier, F-35, B-2 bomber. Those large units of issue don't let you calibrate the level of force very well for the task that you got. You kind of use overmatch usually. You go in with more than you need to ensure that you have survivability. Also, those big platforms tend to need protection for themselves. So You've got to add additional forces to whatever force packages you have with the traditional force so that you can protect those really expensive high-value units that you're using as the, as the core of your force. So all those things cause the traditional force to have to expend a lot more effort on every task which meant it could do fewer tasks over time, which meant it took a longer time for it to get to its objective. The the Mosaic Force had these abilities to operate more quickly, more effectively pursue the strategy, increase the complexity for an adversary, and gain the trust of of a commander over time that allowed us to be able to uh, show that it had value compared to the way we do things now.
0: So Dan, did you uh, want to jump in there? And then can you take us from mosaic warfare down to kind of like the next integrative level to joint all domain command and control?
2: But first, actually, I'd like to step backwards in history. Complexity in military operations, complexity in warfighting is eternal, right? It's, it's always been there, you know, intrinsic to warfare. The kind of complexity that the U.S. invested in over the story arc of the Cold War was one of superior weapon systems, right? We use technology, military technology to offset Soviet conventional military, their, their numeric advantage. They had a larger force, we could have a better force. How do you get that? Well, a lot of it actually showed up in our acquisition process, right? It's about really understanding what technology can do, investing in those specialized technologies, getting the requirements right, and then carefully managing execution. That was the complexity that we mastered. And the F-35 is the icon of this kind of complexity. It's a tremendously complex weapon system that really only the US, only Lockheed Martin could pull together in integration like that. And that's a unique advantage. But the problem is it's not the Cold War anymore, right? And like Brian said, our adversaries have, have been studying this, and we know that in this new era, they still might not be able to produce an aircraft as complexly integrated as an F-35. The Chinese might not be able to. But they have a strategy of, they know the vulnerabilities of our systems, and they move so fast, they build so fast that, that they've come up with a way to overcome that. And what that means is, at a strategic level, we need a new approach. It can't just be about that military technological superiority anymore. There's a new way. and. What Brian described with War Games for Mosaic is that's really exploring this, this fundamental hypothesis of there's a new kind of complexity we care about. And the overall theory is the complexity for the coming era is going to be one in decision making. It's about how quickly I can make a massive number of decisions across this distributed force. The complexity is going to be about mastering command and control across a distributed force. It's about getting unified intent from a big dispersed force when I don't have assured communications. It's about making that force interoperable and making them work in harmony. And that's the new kind of complexity. And one of the things we got out of the war game is actually, you know, what are metrics of that? How can you measure that? And, and one of the, the things that, that shows up in, in our monograph is optionality. It's like, what's the number of decisions you can make and how quickly can you make them? And we, we really believe that concept. That's what we mean by complexity f- for this coming era. Now, maybe we want to pivot back to your question on JADC2 and or ABMS. And and, and maybe you want to repose that. And maybe I'll actually let Brian try to try to take a first swing at it.
0: Yeah, no, that was really interesting. You know, I feel like we're kind of always replaying these kind of same concepts. You know, the United States is more in a Jomini kind of world instead of a Clausewitzian world, but then everybody kind of gets all up in arms in those kinds of comparisons of the of the old masters. But yeah, so I would actually like to to stay up here at the mosaic, you know, broader conceptual level for a moment because, you know, you brought up China. I just got in um, Kai-Fu Lee's book, AI Superpowers, and that was recommended to me by Tate Nurkin. But there's been a lot of people who have been talking about it. And one of his ideas was that in China, their tech firms are all about rapid scaling, whereas you know in the U.S. it's more about iterating to a product market or mission fit. And you guys in your monograph have also had this really great little graphic in there where you explain in just like one graphic, kind of like a lot of the concepts and and why this all made sense. But you said that you guys preferred scalability and speed over optimality. Do you see kind of like a relationship there between what you guys were saying and what Kai-Fu Lee was saying in general about the commercial markets? And then, you know, what are your thoughts about, you know, the likelihood of a U.S.-China, you know, attrition style combat and then where what does that mean for us in terms of mobilization and being prepared for that is the mosaic warfare our kind of like mobilization you know scalable strategy to kind of meet that threat if if the risk you know materializes so there's a couple things that i said there but would you like to take that out
2: that's a complex compound question Let, let me let me maybe take the first part of that which which is which is the assertion um about startups You know, I actually disagree with with Kaifu Lee's observation. Yeah, I think that, look, the classic US venture model for software startups is actually also about high scalability, right? Hyperscaling. But the critical trigger for scalability is indeed good product market fit. Product market fit is the thing that lets you know when you have the favorable dynamics for scalability. It's when you're actually truly satisfying an unmet need in your customers with low friction that's when the right moment to pour gas on the fire is and and you can try to pour gas on the fire you can try to force scalability before then but it doesn't catch it doesn't grow organically until you find product market fit so you know there probably are some cultural differences on which you emphasize but they're deeply related concepts i would argue you can't have true scalability without product market fit always have to be careful about making analogies between the business world and military operations but, you know, now I would emphasize, I think the appropriate analogy for a military mission is closest to a business process. But the military is a lot more complicated because things are always changing. And in, in that really creates a new set of challenges, some of which aren't really well reflected in, in the commercial world. Maybe, Brian, you want to take the rest of, of uh, Eric's question?
1: I think it's a terrific question to talk about the idea of attrition-centric or what we would call decision-centric warfare. I would offer that the Chinese are not pursuing or offering a force designed to pursue attrition-centric warfare. They've moved up the value chain themselves and are pursuing a lot more expensive platforms designed to fight what they would call system destruction warfare, where they're going to go after the system of systems that the U.S. has developed along with its allies and identify its weak points which are, in particular, logistics, command and control, information, and communications, uh, and then use that as a way to defeat us by forcing us to accept, uh, essentially, a fait accompli or to accept uh, an outcome that is uh, less advantageous than the U.S. would want. It's about affecting decision-making. So it's about affecting our decision-making, so we choose not to enter into a conflict, and it's about presenting us conditions, dilemmas that are you know, uh, ones that we cannot surmount. So I would offer that they've moved into this phase of decision-centric warfare already and that we are now just catching up. Uh, the idea then is mosaic uh, Warfare is a instantiation of a form of warfare that is optimized or is designed for this decision-centric era. And like Dan was saying, that this may be this third offset that we've talked about for the last couple of years of you know, what's the follow-on to the precision, precision strike regime that we're currently in. Well, that new competitive regime with great powers is likely to be something around decision making, and the technologies that are going to be inherently involved in it are going to be artificial intelligence and autonomous systems. In a way that precision-guided weapons and networks were the inherent technologies for the last, currently still in. So the idea is that we're moving to this decision-centric warfare area. China and Russia are beginning to master it. You can see that in their Gray's operations. Uh, you can that in their kind of whole of government approach to addressing their uh, competitors and adversaries. So now we need a force that's designed to impose that kind of decision challenge on the Chinese. And so we'd say that this force that translates from the uh, complication of individual multi-mission platforms for the complexity of a networked force that's more recomposable is the transition that allows us to gain decision advantage over an adversary that is attempting to use decision-making as a, as a form of warfare against us. We're entering this competition, we're probably the second mover here, but you know, we could potentially gain advantage as the second mover by seeing what our adversary is doing and maybe doing a better job of it and taking advantage of some of the inherent strengths that U.S. forces might have, which would be commanders that are willing to take the initiative and make decisions on their own and use technology in the support of that. Whereas maybe on the Chinese side, not necessarily built into the way that they make military operational decisions.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. I, I think that COVID-19 has kind of drawn my attention back to industrial mobilization. But, you know, I'm, I'm conflicted reading some of the stuff about China and the way that their leadership is talking. It just it doesn't seem like World War II and the Korean War is a good model for thinking about how that mobilization needs to occur. And it's like, well, you know, what what does scaling into, you know, a conflict that will probably slowly build up. What, what does the U.S. need? And I think you guys make a compelling argument that mosaic warfare, you know, as a concept to be embraced by the United States, it not only presents challenges to the decision-centric warfare that China is going towards, but it also allows us to more rapidly be scalable and, you know, affect ourselves in a complex way. So can you guys get a little bit into, um, again, joint all-domain command and control? How does that enable the Mosaic Warfare concept?
1: So I can start, and then Dan can jump in there. So I'd say JAD C 2 as people call it, is fundamentally designed, or they, they aspire to, reach a point where they can interoperate the entire force, meaning any sensor, any shooter, any commander can talk to each other. Uh, and then it would also give commanders the decision support tools that would allow them to make more effective and more rapid decisions to the point we've been making about Mosaic Warfare. is Part of what Mosaic Warfare is designed to do is create a force uh, and a command and control scheme that allows uh, commanders to make faster and more effective decisions on the U.S. side, uh, and also to make more decisions uh, in parallel. So those those are the advantages uh, from a decision making perspective that Mosaic Warfare offers, and that's what JADC2 is seeking. So uh, that's the aspiration. The difference, though, I'd say, between this what they say and what they're actually doing is JADC2 is very focused right now on communication hardware, you know, developing the networks and the interoperability through capabilities like Stitches allows a larger number of elements of the force to talk to one another, which is a fundamental essential element to eventually getting decision-making advantage, but it's not sufficient. So we need to do more than that to be able to enable Mosaic Warfare or anything like Mosaic Warfare, which is what JADC2 proponents are aspiring to. So Dan, uh, over to you.
2: I I think about that as it's it's the first steps. It's the first steps towards a new model of war fighting, And they want to start with building out a battle network. And, you know, you'll hear Will Roper use the analogy of military and other things. And that's important. And, you know, ABMS is, is trying to make those steps. And what are those steps? You try to make things interoperable. You try to enable this communication. But there has to be more to U.S. strategy and theory of victory than just having a battle network, right? Our adversaries also has to. It has to be the characteristics of that network and what you do with it. And, and really, you know, the decision-centric concept, Mosaic builds on top of that and says the essence of having that substrate Having that interoperability network is being able to impose all of these different options on your adversary. So many that it's overwhelming. It's so about being able to build up this asymmetric advantage in complexity of the force that you present, of the dilemmas that you present, of the headaches that you give your adversary, so they can't possibly defend against all of them. And that, of course, is a tenet of maneuver warfare, but it's maneuver warfare that's really adapted to the electronic age, the information age, and that's how those concepts I- interact. You know, so. We're taking the first steps now, but it really has to be applied with that that theory of war fighting as well. That's our, our take.
0: Yeah, I love how you're stressing a couple of times there, optionality. You know, that's something that I've always been kind of talking about, at least within the acquisition system, the ability for program managers to keep their options open in technology, you know, allows them to grab these opportunities. And then you guys are using it. In a little bit different way. I mean, the commanders obviously have an expanded amount of options in order to deploy their force structure, and then that presents an optionality problem on the enemy. So I think keeping options open rather than locking down decisions into these narrow stovepipes is definitely important. So with uh, the JADC 2 concept, you know, there's been a lot of press and a lot of talk about advanced battle management system ABMS from the Air Force. You know, how is that implementing the JADC2 concept? You know, I
2: see ABMS is where the rubber's meeting the road right now on, on people actually funding experimentation and development towards far JADC2. There's there's some other efforts as well, certainly the one that I think is, is best funded and, and out in front. And it's a it's a really important effort. But creating a new model of warfighting is it's really hard. So, you know it's not realistic first of all to expect ABMS to deliver everything and get everything right on day one you know, I think a lot of where the focus now is it's building out this battle network it is building out this military internet of things and therefore you know they are going to focus on um, demonstrations where they're connecting new new military systems and and that's that's really important that's where we do need to start but that by itself that interoperability that military internet of things that by itself, doesn't get us overmatched there'll be new work that's required about decision support for people how how we really engage human creativity in the fight that's also required that will also be an essential element and and that will also need to to come along at some point in time
0: so you know i want to get your reaction to this because uh i almost feel like jad c2 And some of the enterprise tooling and all that stuff going on behind the scenes as well that enable it is kind of like the next military high ground. And, you know, in my view, especially since we're kind of in the early days, it feels like we could really benefit from some inter-service rivalry, kind of like we did with the missile systems back in the 1950s. You know, you had all these examples of, you know, Army solving Atlas problems and then and vice versa. And so there's lots of learning going on between these parallel paths. But several observers today have been kind of complaining that the services are creating these competing systems, which will likely be stovepiped again into their individual requirements, all pursuing the JADC2 concept, but, you know, going back to their old stovepiped ways. So do you think that there should just be one command and control system to rule them all? Or are we still in the early days and require kind of like these little smaller chunk outs that are competitive?
2: I think it's very unlikely the U.S. can find an asymmetric advantage from having a global solution to anything. So I'm, I'm an extreme skeptic on one command and control system to rule them all. I think the cultural advantages of the U.S. are, are likely to be things like a commander's initiative and a commander's autonomy, and in general, things like the cultural differences between services. Th- those are the kinds of things where the fact that we're different, the fact that we're diverse, those are the kinds of cultural advantages which the U.S. should seek to amplify. So whether, whether it comes to procuring missiles or command and control systems or how we think about interoperability, I highly value diversity because diversity gives you resilience and gives you adaptability. and Those you can get a warfighting advantage from. You know, going back to your earlier comment, I, I mean, so much of our acquisition system is, is built around you know, McNamara's billion insight to system analysis thrust. It's let's find the one best way. Let's find out one best way early so we, we can make the smart investment. And when you look at the department's process for requirements or funding, a lot of it's built around that idea right Get the requirements right early. so we know we're going to spend money for 30 years. we build the best missile system so let's not do redundancy between different services. let's let's make it you know the best missile system. but if you adopt an optionality strategy that says I have more flexibility from delaying that, You don't want to pick the one best one early. You want really different things. You want a diverse inventory and you want to defer to the last possible moment, the choice of what's the best way to achieve my military objective. That's the essence of an optionality strategy, right? You're deferring some of those key choices to confound your adversary.
0: Yeah, I love how you brought it back to uh, the old systems analysis stuff. I'm a huge fan of the history there. And Armin Alchin, if our listeners haven't read it, The Chef, the Gourmet, and the Gourmand, definitely read that. He was talking about how systems analysis was trying to pick the very best program and systems configuration to so pick the best one on paper before you even get any experimental data. And he was like, look, you got to take sequential steps. And in rdt e the job of you know developers is like that that of the chef. You present options to the gourmet who in a later time to their liking, pleasing, and audience, they're able to choose the best option rather than having a limited set. I only give you the one thing. And I feel like a lot of times RDT&E and procurement kind of just like creates this one option and just throws it over the fence to the users. And then they don't really have any hedges or any other options to compare it to to see what the value of that is. I think that's really well said. Uh,
2: you know, so, and since you brought up the the cooking analogy, the cooking analogy is a fun one. Because I think we all know there's, there's only a finite number uh, of ingredients out there. And yet, you know, nobody thinks like the diversity of what you can do with cooking. Nobody thinks that cuisine has come to an end. Because of course, there's always more to do. There's always more innovation. And Brian and I wrote uh, an op-ed in Defense One, which contrasted the kind of innovation that we think the US needs for the future is the kind that shows up on the reality TV show Chopped. Uh, and you know it's a fun cooking show. Yet yeah, the chefs are given these baskets of ingredients. Right? You got sardines. You have watermelon. Uh, you have you have an avocado and you have bacon. Go make go make an appetizer. And you're like, what would I do with that? This doesn't make sense. But you know what? They're able to pick up those pieces and they're able to apply their creativity and and make something that's appealing. I, I that's exactly what you said. I really like that. Or another example of that kind of innovation, where the kind of thing where the U.S. might have a long-term advantage—it's the movie Apollo Thirteen, you know that famous scene, right? Where, where the engineers they dump all the parts on the table and they say, "These are the pieces we have. Now we need to go build something, right, that fixes this problem." Nobody wrote the performance specification for that. We didn't do detailed V and V. It's an improvisational kind of engineering. There's there's a role for both, but that improvisation is the kind of thing, the kind of thing that if we can enable that, if we have an acquisition infrastructure that enables that, if we have an interoperability infrastructure that enables that, that's the kind of thing that the U.S. can really step into.
0: I like what you're saying there. And, you know, it seems like, well it doesn't seem like it is a fact that our acquisition system was built around the systems analysis approach and we still are living with the legacy structures, most of which haven't changed in 60, 70 years, despite, you know, a lot of people kind of coming around to this view that you're stating there. And I just feel like one of the big issues is that we always just fund everything and we just focus on these platform end items and we're not doing what you're kind of saying there with, Recombinatorial innovation, where you're kind of funding upstream the the capital that can enable new things, as well as the components and the subsystems as independent families of developments, which gives systems integrators options, many options from which they can now like create systems rapidly and cheaply, and then provide that in an experimental kind of way. Um, Brian, did you have anything to to add?
1: Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, with, with, I'm sure what Dan, you know, when Dan was talking about uh, the idea that we're moving towards more of a uh, Sec DevOps model for course design, you know, so where you're going from basically buying individual items through an acquisition system to a model where you're paying somebody to create a stream of, of capabilities. Uh, so you know, the, the the old model was very discrete, very focused on hardware, and as you mentioned, you know, more focused on the the bigger hardware the better. Um, the new model is going to have to be focused on investing in the same kind of organizations that used to build the the big multi-mission platform are going to now be turning and having to spend their time doing R&D to integrate smaller objects, which may be coming from a host of other organizations. So it's, the integration function ends up being the thing you spend a lot of money on, as opposed to the building and, and uh, acquisition of a very large few items that take forever to construct. So it's it's a different way of spending the money, which makes it hard because within the department, we don't really have a good model for spending essentially operations and support funding on something that's actually resulting in acquisition products at the back end. Um, so that's one of the reforms that we're going to have to pursue to implement any model like this.
2: One thing I'll echo from that is that, that's, you know, that's absolutely right. It's a different model for, for how you spend money when you have this optionality strategy or this this improvisational assembly strategy. There's some great folks out at OSD and who are exploring this. You know, one of the things that's really exciting is their budget activity eight experiment, which you can think about as colorless money, which is one of these things that's useful for doing development, where you might you might be doing uh, operations one day and development the next, and I'm quickly moving all over all of these categories of funding because. You know, I'm always working to deliver a continuous of capability. So there, there is some good initiatives that's that's out there and starting to move in the right direction. There's there's a lot of attention on this.
0: You know, while we're here on the budget, you know, that's kind of one of my pet projects there. We're going to be doing an event with uh, George Mason and a few others discussing, you know, possible paths to reform. But you guys said something pretty interesting in your Mosaic Warfare piece where uh, you were saying, and I think this is very under, underappreciated. You guys said that, mission-based budgeting was one of the things that would really enable movement away from this kind of old McNamara systems analysis world of industrial era developments and move it towards the future. So why is mission-based budgeting kind of an important concept? And what is that? Most of today's funding, most of today's budgeting for making new things,
2: for developing technology, for bringing that technology into operation is built around systems. And you find that in a program element in the budget. right? You, you read through the bottom of the NDA that, that passes, one program element, it's the name of a system, it's tactical aircraft versus an F-35, uh, and it's the amount of funding for that. Most of the budget is structured around platforms, airplanes, and tanks, and ships, and other major weapon systems, and you know, implied by that. And that platform got to exist by somebody saying, hey, I have an operational need, I have a gap, I'm going to write a requirement, and we're going to turn that requirement into this program element. And it implies that I knew the answer 20 years ago when I set up that program element. And what mission-focused budgeting would say is, I actually don't know 20 years from now exactly what the right way to solve this problem is. I know that I'm going to have a problem, but my problem is much more like preventing the adversary from conducting a surprise invasion of a neighboring country. That's my mission. And I don't know the best way to solve it, but I do know what the mission is. And what I want to do is I want to take some of my money and not stick it in the program element. I want to put some of my money and stick it in the mission element. Because suddenly, if I have this mission-focused money, what does it encourage me to do? It encourages me to spend money on interoperability and command and control and communication aids, which from the standpoint of one platform from one airplane or tanker ship, it's never my problem. It's not the tank's problem that it's not interoperable with the aircraft. It's not the aircraft's problem. It's that's, that's the seam. It's between the lines. If you take some of the money and you align it around missions instead of programs, you resolve that. Because suddenly the mission owner has a mandate to, to be sure that that mission can get done no matter how, no matter what. We still need programs. We still need tanks, planes, and ships. But a lot of what we are trying to do is solve these increasingly difficult military missions and if we're serious about that, if we're serious about solving that, we have to put our money where our mouth is. We have to align some of our resources around missions, around our real warfighting problems. That's the essence of that idea about mission focused budgeting, mission based budgeting.
0: You know, again, going back to this concept that the way that we think about force structure is reflected in our acquisition system. You know, we have this program budget. It's literally the budgeting system we have is the program budget system. So we focus all of our energy and our funding on these program elements, stovepipes. And then we get these monolithic platforms that can't communicate with each other. And now you see that blowing back today, a lot of people are talking about, oh, our systems can't, you know, interoperate. We need to focus on enterprise this and that and, you know, space and missile systems center. You know, SMC, they're reorganizing to kind of take advantage of that. They have a new enterprise core, which is its own program executive office to kind of take care of some of that. But this idea of the program versus having a budgeting system that's based on portfolios, whether those are portfolios of missions or portfolios of projects or, you know, an organization that's pursuing a mission, that portfolio is an important idea. And I think it actually leads to more interoperability. But there's another thing that that you guys have also talked about and been involved with that will really help interoperability and flexibility of systems. So just to kind of give a brief intro, you know, back in the old RAND days that we're talking about, you know, there was the weapon systems concept where all the components and all the systems were purpose-built to a platform design so you could get the greatest advance with the least cost and everything's like tightly integrated. But that's kind of how again we have these stovepipe DOD systems or their own programs they don't talk to anybody else. More recently there's been the movement towards open global standards so that components can kind of be swapped in and out of multiple platforms which simplifies interoperability but it makes it really difficult to a- agree and reach an agreement on these standards and then how to evolve them over time. So can you expand on that trade-off and then, you know, explain what is this path towards you know, an ad hoc interoperability that can kind of go beyond this modular open systems concept and you know, provide more flexibility to the Mosaic Warfare concept? Yeah, there is a
2: lot of confusion about standards in, in the DoD because it, it just sounds so logical to say the DoD is we're one customer, we're one joint force, we all have radios. Can't we use the same one and can't we use the same standard? Let's just write down what that standard should be put it into acquisition policy that everybody should use it, and we solve this problem. just sounds so logical. Just look at history for a minute. Link 16, how long has that been around? Around 40 years. Sure, some, some of your listeners will know more precisely than that, around 40 years. It is still not rolled out across the entire Air Force inventory, and there's different implementations of it. The history suggests that even within one service and one application, global standards are really hard to pull off. And on top of that, you know, what if I'm a bright engineer and there's something that I want to do? You know, I want to bridge a satellite in to talk to an aircraft. You know, I can't use Link-16 to do that. I'd have to pre-configure the network and it's not the right waveform. So standards can actually hold you back and they don't quite deliver all of the promise that, that you need. You can't just achieve a consensus between all of the parties everywhere, all of the time. It's always up to date and accommodates innovation. So there has to be a better way. A lot of people talk about the commercial world. I didn't say, ah, there's a standard. Uh, The commercial world does standards. We should do standards too. But it's different. The commercial world, the standards that emerge usually are built off of existing workable solutions. They're people donating intellectual property to a consortium and people building off of that. Nobody tries to be global. People just adhere to what works. And it's not really the same thing as how the DOD thinks about standards. You know, it, you're hinting at, you know, there's gotta be a better way. And indeed there is. And this is something DARPA has explored with this concept of Stitches. And Stitches, you know, looks at this interoperability problem with through a different lens. It says, what's the fundamental problem of interoperability? It's two different things need to work together. That's the fundamental problem. Two things working together. It's a pair of things. It's not a global problem across everybody. Fundamentally at any given time, I have a network Every network is defined by links, link links two things. That's the fundamental element. It could be two pieces of equipment on an airplane. It could be a targeting pod and a radio. Could be two different airplanes, doesn't matter. Two different things I want to link together. And if I think about that, all I have are all of these different sets of pairwise links. Maybe I shouldn't think about interoperability as trying to achieve a universal language. I shouldn't try to design Esperanto and force everybody to talk Esperanto, which is a universal language. Maybe I should do you know, on demand translation. Maybe I should create the Google Translate equivalent, right? Which is, I type in what I want, and just at the perfect moment, it pops out the right translation. Maybe that's a better approach to interoperability than Esperanto. It like might seem less elegant, but it's a lot more practical. It gives me what I want when I need it. Stitches is the equivalent of that, but for systems. And it, it says, hey, it's a big graph. I understand all of these relationships between all of these different pairs of components. Now, you tell me which of these components out of everything I know you want to put together, and I will tell you. I will give you that Google Translate way that they communicate. And it's a radically different way of looking at it, right? There's no cobble. There's no Esperanto. But it's just what you need when you need it. And that's ad hoc interoperability. It says you might not know until a, you know, a week before or a day before what's the set of systems you're going to go fight with. What's the satellite? What's the airplane? What's the ship? What's the sensor? What's the missile? I don't know exactly what that's going to be. But the second I decide, I can build all of the translations and do it. I don't have to write a requirement in the program office to do it. And it's you know it empowers innovation. It empowers the, the warfighter to have their creativity of, of how you pull that together. And that's it's a very different model for interoperability than than you'll find anywhere else. And that's really exciting. I think it's one of these things that could enable an asymmetric advantage for the U.S. Everybody thought about interoperability as it should work like Lego blocks, right? I just want to plug and play stuff, and and I want to plug and play Legos of weapon systems and radios and and, and all of that, and you know what history has shown us is doesn't work. Logical idea doesn't work, and 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 the reason why it's because you, you end up with backwards compatibility issues. You know if the Air Force is going to do Legos, the Army's going to do Lincoln Logs, and and the Navy's going to do you know Tinker Toys and you you end up with people with standards that don't interoperate because people have different things to do. And if you're an engineer working on developing software or building code, you're going you want to do things in the best most expedient way possible and you're not going to develop somebody else's arbitrary standard that doesn't really work for your problem. It just turns that wisdom on its head and says, "You don't care about global standards. If you have standards, that's great. I only care about connecting one block with another block." And essentially it's, it's a scheme of, you know, massively scalable 3D printing. So I can connect a Lincoln Log and a Lego and a Tinker toy and a Lego by just creating that perfect little software shim that fits in between things automatically. So it's, it's, a, it's a graph view of interoperability as opposed to a universal view of interoperability. It turns out that that's much less expensive to use that model to apply it to a diverse force, a large force, an evolving force. If you have a small static closed world, a standard like Legos, that may make sense. But for larger problems, problems where things change, that just doesn't work very well.
0: I was actually looking at some of the videos and stuff that was going over the, you know, like sensors open systems architecture and all the other ones for each of the kind of consortiums. And my impression was like, man, this is first being led by the primes kind of you know, for the most part, it seems like the big incumbent players are designing this. But there's just like this huge mass of of stuff that, and different interfaces that had to be agreed upon. I guess it was supposed to be open, but in the end, with all that I don't know background that went into it, and then who was leading it, it seemed almost like another barrier to entry. It's like, well, these are our standards, and we're the ones that operate under this way. And you know, good luck trying to figure out <laughs> the the web of all yeah. this stuff in, involved in this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that was it was interesting. I was trying to go over some of that stuff, and I was like, okay, so you're using AI to auto-generate code between it. Is that kind of how? Yeah, yeah. It's
2: it's actually not AI. It's it's. Uh, but yeah, you, you use a use a compiler. you you express one interface um, with a special programming language that's really easy to use. Most of the time, when we pass around information, it's things like, what time is it? But the problem is I could talk about Eastern time. I could talk about Zulu time. It could be 24 hour format. It could be talking Unix time. We all know it's time. But the only person who knows what kind of time in there is the person who programmed it. And very often it actually doesn't show up properly in the documentation. And it turns out that it's a way of expressing exactly how two things should interact. There is no global time. It's not Zulu, it's not Unix time. There is no global sense of it, but, I can tell you exactly how two things should interact because I do know that this one was programmed in this format expressing Zulu time and this one was format in in Unix time. So I can build that perfect translation. And once I do one of them, because I know how this system interacts with this system and this interacts with that, I can now trace through all of that. So there's no AI, it's just good math that traces through that thing and gives me, this is the exact perfect translation between these two systems which have never before spoken.
0: I mean, that's a big win to get it kind of at least mentioned even, you know, you should use this in the NDAA if at all possible. When just looking at some of this stuff, a lot of people kept talking about Mosa, 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 and it was just like, if it was so easy and it was so great, wouldn't it, we have already had it like when we were talking yeah. about this decades ago? So so what's yeah. what's been holding the whole thing back?
2: Yeah, it it is. And
0: I think it's a little bit of our mental
2: model, right? Our mental model being the Lego block model misses a lot of the complexity that happens in, in real life. Right, the complexity of, there's ambiguity. When I write something down as a standard, there's a lot of ambiguity there. And, and me as an engineer, as a software programmer, I read the standard. There's a lot of leave room in there. You know, the PDF document that I downloaded doesn't tell me exactly what to do. It sort of tells me what to do. And you know, the person on the back end, it turns out there's ambiguity there. So two people who think they've programmed the standard, their stuff doesn't actually interoperate. And that's a part of the problem or, you know, here, here's a really simple example. One of the, the core problems you run into in the military is talking about locations, look at geographic locations in the world. And close air support is a great example of this. The person in the airplane, in close air support, the whole world revolves around them. Their coordinate system is, is it my 12 o'clock or is it my 6 o'clock, right? It's this coordinate system that flies with them through the air. The guy on the ground, right, it's you know, he's looking at some grid on his map and that's where he thinks about, you know, I'm a click away from, from the bridge. And when you actually like listen to people who are working close air support, uh, first of all, it's largely done through voice, they're trying to talk through these coordinate transformations. The guy on the ground says, it's to the west of the bridge, right? He's thinking northwest, east, south. And what does he see? He sees a bridge. The guy in the air sees 12 bridges. And does I don't know where you are in GPS. I'm looking around. I'm flying. You know, did I fly over you? Uh, and they use techniques like smoke, right? Which is that's a means of, of helping to synchronize that problem, which exists between two people who have different jobs and are in different places. This problem still exists. It turns out when you have actually have computer programs and machines trying to interact, right? It turns out that the person who programmed flight computer for the airplane thinks like the pilot, uh, and they express coordinates in that system. And you know the person who programmed the situational awareness computer for the guy on the ground thinks in GPS coordinates. It's really hard to do that translation. And that's why the aircraft radio like Link 16 and the J-Series messages, they are not perfect. And that's why you need things like stitches, which can actually translate. Because there's actually this deeper philosophical issue there, which is, the right way of expressing the world for me is unique to my job, whether it's the engineer programming the radio, whether it's the, the forward air controller on the ground, uh, or whether it's the pilot in the air. And what you really need is not to make the forward air controller think like a pilot. That's not going to help. You really need to bring them together by figuring out what's the, what's the perfect way to connect and translate this. And that's what Stitches does, right? It's actually attacking the philosophical underpinnings of the differences in perspectives the different engineering systems and subsystems and platforms and roles in the joint force have.
0: Is that being able to be like scaled right now? Like what's what's holding it back? Is it just like funding and a willpower by the various like product owners to go out and just experiment with this and see how it works? Yeah, you know, I would actually say the biggest obstacle is it's hard to understand, right?
2: If I told you that it was just going to be Lego blocks and we're going to have interoperable force, that just sounds a lot more appealing, right? It's physical, something I can understand. That's why I actually worked through um, that that analogy between Lego blocks and, and Tinker Toys because that actually captures it. It's like, you think it's Lego blocks but they think it's Tinker Toys. What do you do about that? Right? You actually have to connect those. And, and it is an intellectually consistent argument. So Stitches is the 3D printer, right? That that prints those pieces together. It's, it's not glue that couples arbitrary things that you don't know about. It's couples two things that I do know about, and I know how they connect, and it gives me that perfect connector. That's what it is. It's ad hoc. It's interoperability on demand. When I need to connect two things, it creates the perfect connector. It's not universal. It's not magic. I have to know something about those systems. They have to be in my graph, but it creates the perfect connector when I need it. It's a hard concept to understand.
0: So there's a lot of great stuff that we're talking about. And, you know, I could just talk to you guys about JADC2 and modularity and interfaces all day. But I really want you guys put out this really great article in Breaking Defense on the digital century series concept that the Air Force has been moving towards, especially under William Roper's lead there. And I just want you guys to explain what was your recommendation for the Digital Century Series?
1: So Digital Century Series is an effort on the Air Force's part to develop a, a series of new fighter jet variants that are going to be essentially a follow-on to their current F-35. So the Next Generation Air Dominance is, is a program that's ongoing. Um, the Digital Century Series was intended to be a way to flesh out some of the various technologies that might be uh, incorporated into a future jet fighter. It harkens back to an approach that was used back in the early Cold War in the 1950s to explore the technologies surrounding what was then new jet fighters and supersonic jet fighters. One of the concerns the Air Force had was, well, how can we exploit these technologies? How do we incorporate them into manned aircraft? How do we use them in a real warfighting application? All of that was new at that time. So they used this rapid succession of uh, variants of a new aircraft, in this case, the F-100 series, hence the Century series. And they put out one of those a year, approximately, for about eight years. And they built them in enough numbers to where they could get out and actually use them in an operational environment, evaluate the technologies, and assess you know how they wanted to build um, their fighter jets going forward. And so that effort really influenced the design of fighter jets for the following 50 years. Well, here we are in this new century, and new technologies are becoming available, like unmanned systems, uh, autonomy in addition to what we've had before with fifth generation and stealth aircraft. And so what the Air Force wants to explore is how does autonomy, artificial intelligence, unmanned systems come together and influence the design of the next generation of jet fighters. And so this Digital Century series is supposed to be an effort to do that. We think it's flawed though in that <laughs> the approach is really still centered around the manned fighter aircraft as the as the centerpiece. You know, so the Digital Century series is looking to develop and field in rapid succession, a series of fighter jets of different variants that are gonna use modular approaches to mix and match the capabilities in them. Um, some of which, like in the previous century series, might involve more unmanned system integration. Some might involve more autonomy where the pilot does less work and the, the airplane does more of the thinking and work on its own. So these, these mixing and matching these capabilities is how they're gonna explore what's the best way to incorporate these new technologies into manned fighters. Um, We think the centering on the man fighter though is fundamentally flawed because the whole purpose of these new technologies is to open up the space in terms of well what is even the role of a person in a air combat situation is the person really more of a commander a command and control node um, as opposed to the operator of a particular airplane and that's probably where we're going therefore we think the digital century series should instead focus on the technologies that they really want to address which is Autonomy, AI, uh, unmanned systems, and therefore the Digital Century Series airplanes should all be unmanned. It should be a series of unmanned aircraft variants that are designed to explore this technology space and what's the best way to field these technologies. And the manned part of the Digital Century Series should be a separate you know aircraft that's really just doing command and control, which could be any number of aircraft that we already have in the force today. So Dan, do you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, I guess I'll make two points. So so first. You know, one of the things Will Roper is trying to do, I think, is is bring back a, uh, a sense of the magic uh, of the golden era of, of Air Force acquisition. And that's actually something I'm, I'm really sympathetic to, right? Bring back the sense of definite optimism of a better future and of this excitement of technology development. And, and you see that across uh, a number of the initiatives he, he's launching, where it's not necessarily always about... Uh, just doing a big program to, to meet a requirement, you know, that there's a that there's value in exploration. But if you're going to embrace that, and if you're going to embrace, hey, there is, there's a better tomorrow, and there's a vision for the future that has to be coupled with, as Brian said, you know, a real exploration of that trade space. One of the things I think you can observe in, in my own career in Unmanned Systems goes goes back to working with the uh, the guy who started The, the Predator. Abe Karam. And, and when you listen to that story, a lot of that was about inventing a new model. You, you know, today we take the model of how a predator works uh, or a reaper works. Uh, we take it for granted because we know there's a model, there's a word for it. In fact, when we use the word UAV, that's what most people think of in, in the department. There's other ideas out there, right? We hear words like it's a swarm or a wingman. Both of those words, again, are are actually analogies. They're analogies to something else that we can see and imagine. And I think that just shows you how limited our vocabulary in that space is, or framed more positively, how much more room for imagination about new operational concepts, new modes of operations. Uh, And that ties in with Brian's points about, you know, the booming technology in this space. Yeah, there's definitely room for uh, an optimistic view of the Air Force's future in development, but that should be a, a aligned around a place of tremendous opportunity and unexplored territory, and and that's that's really what uh, we were trying to get at with that article.
0: On Abe Carim, I, I recommend Rick Whittle's book Predator, which was really great, and it showed how irregular, I guess, you know, that program was, how it how it was started, and then how it actually got into the department through DARPA and then got fielded is very irregular program. You know, when I read your article, you know, it made me think on the Digital Century series. And let me know if this was right or wrong. The old hardware and propulsion stuff, that was kind of cutting edge in the forties, fifties, sixties, but a lot of that technology's matured. We're trying to move on to, you know, what's the next frontier of technology. And in my mind it seems like, well, when you do that and you start experimenting you're inevitably going to get these feedback loops, which force you to explore new realms of airframing and propulsion that goes back and forth where you're pushing yourself forward. Is that kind
1: of how you guys were thinking about it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Part of what uh, the experimentation is supposed to reveal is what are the new con-ops, or what are the new tactics and techniques and procedures that you're going to use when you exploit this technology? So with the original Century series, part of what they were doing was seeing well, can a supersonic fighter aircraft be operationally useful? Because that was not clear initially. Whether you, you know driving or around really fast, can you maneuver the airplane in a way that's tactically relevant, or is this just going to be a, an interceptor that flies out to one point, turns around, and comes back? Um, so those are the, the some of the experimentation relates to the CONOPS as well, and to, to Dan's point, um, you know what we're trying to do here is explore what's the CONOPS, what are the command and control relationship. That you would use if you have an unmanned uh, aircraft with various iterations you know some versions of this new digital century series might be completely unmanned aircraft that are operating autonomously in a very defined and limited mission space others might be more like a remotely piloted aircraft where you've got a, a op where the human operators in another airplane may be using it as a loyal wingman um you know other conovs might employ the the unmanned system as a responsive asset. So it's got a you know, set of branches and sequels It can perform on its own under the supervision of a, a human operator in an adjacent or, or distant aircraft. So there's, there's a con ops element of it that's part of the experimentation that provides that feedback loop like you're saying, that the con ops might reveal an opportunity that the technology could afford that maybe we haven't exploited yet. And then we roll that back into the technology development to incorporate that, that change and then we go out and experiment with the con ops again um the digital se- the original century series did a lot of that and so i think the digital century series could as well but if they focus on the manned aircraft and swapping pieces in and out of it to explore how to improve its performance and maybe how it might interact with an unmanned system that is separate from it then i think they're going to really miss the whole opportunity space that unmanned systems and autonomy could afford them
0: yeah in my conversation with steve blank when he brought up the uh, Skyborg program, which is the loyal wingman. He kind of denigrated it to a degree, saying, you know, it almost just shows a lack of vision and, and going for that next realm past the man-fighter era. So there's a, there's a ton that we can break down here on, on the uh, Digital Century Series concept. It's a, it's a big issue, and we'll see how that goes going forward. But I want you guys to, before we wrap up here talk about your new Center for Defense concepts and technologies that you're putting together there at the, and it's already stood up, right, at the Hudson Institute. So, you know, what was your vision for that center? And and what are you trying to get out of it?
1: Well, thanks for bringing that up, Eric. We're very excited about the the new center. The idea behind the center was to try to look beyond some of the policy discussions you see about new technologies that are that are most prevalent from think tanks today. So if you read what think tanks put out about new technologies like um, autonomous systems, uh, unmanned systems, AI, 5G communications, undersea capabilities. A lot of those papers address policy implications. You know, should we put um, controls in place in terms of how lethal an autonomous system can be? How do we put in policies that limit the ability of Huawei to get control of our communication networks? they don't really address the operational or strategic implications for national security or military operations. They stay strictly in this policy realm, which is not helpful when you're trying to inform uh, congressional leaders or staffs or people in the Pentagon that are outside the policy world, they need to understand, well, how could these technologies be used and embraced for operational purposes? What operational concepts could they enable? What changes in the force structure that we're going to build could be enabled? How would we change our strategy as these these technologies come online? That's what we wanted to explore with this new center is really focused on this integration or this intersection of defense concepts uh, and new technologies. And we're gonna focus on those areas. So 5G, AI, autonomous systems. Uh, We'll look at electromagnetic uh, warfare. We'll look at uh, what's going on in undersea warfare. So, and space also. So these areas are gonna be the kind of focus areas that we're gonna use to guide our efforts to build new operational concepts and use those operational concepts to identify where the technology should go from the military standpoint, and maybe what some of the policies are that we should put in place to foster the, the development of those technologies in a way that, that, that improves U.S. national security.
0: Great, yeah, it almost feels like you know you're trying to bridge science fiction with you know actual warfighting concepts and you know science fact today, and, and you know yeah. I, I'm a big fan of. You know, you hear a lot of these technologists were big uh, sci-fi nerds when they were younger, and I I liked reading sci-fi novels as well. And I think there's just a there's a lot to that notion of you you almost have to dream out forward and then like think about it. And Dan, did you you're you're a technologist? Were you a sci-fi guy?
2: Yeah, I was. That always captured my imagination. That you know, the, the two things which really captured my imagination and, and really you know brought me into into aerospace as an industry uh, was was sci-fi, uh, and you know I have to admit it, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, and uh, and and also the Golden Age of of aerospace. You know, I got a, a copy of Jane's All the World's Aircraft at a young age, and and you know, I mean, I knew that book by heart, and I was flipping through the pages and trying to figure out the stories of of these aircraft, and. And and you know thinking about the move and the counter move and and the next leap you know just it all seems so exciting to me uh, that uh, you know without a doubt that that drew me into into technology.
0: So Dan, what did, what kind of thread did you want to pull here at the the Hudson Institute for Defense Concepts and Technologies? What what are you what's like the first thing that you're going to tackle there? First
2: of all. You know, um, Brian's a remarkable guy with, with a nimble mind. So he's a lot of fun to work with. And, and second of all, my own background is is in technology uh, and then also in business. So naturally, I'm an outcast in the policy world. So it makes a lot of sense to, to focus here. But, you know, I think when, when you look at, at these technologies that Brian talked about and you look, you look in the larger strategic context, you can't help but come away with the notion that information has... An increasingly important role in conflict. And, you know, trying to figure out how that plays out across how we think about the military, how we think about national security, how we think about strategy, how we think our institutional processes sure seems important. So, you know, what I want to do is, is just be a part of that exploration and just understand, understand that, you know, some of the publication that that Brian mentioned earlier in the show, um, you know, was was some of our writing on this decision centric model for, for operations. So that's an idea that I think really excites me. I think there's a lot of work yet to be done in in exploring that concept.
1: So we really think that's in this idea. Decision centric warfare is going to be a kind of a key theme for all militaries going forward. I think we've talked about the advent of information as the main competition between. Uh, great powers, and even us and regional powers. And it, we think it goes beyond information. So the, the key is not so much um, who has control of the information, how do you manipulate information, how do you gather and uh, deny your adversary information. Um, it's going to be how do you use that information to inform decision-making, and how can you degrade your opponent's ability to make good decisions in a timely manner. So we think decision-making is really the center of, of future competition and conflict more so than attrition, which is kind of our post-Cold War model, very much focused on attrition, uh, and even information, which I think people right now are just sort of grasping at information as the, the main uh, area of competition. But we think that that's really kind of a surface view of it. It's really much more about decision-making than it is about in- just information on its own. Um, so that's going to guide a lot of the research that we do at the center um, as we try to come up with ways for U.S. and its allies to better, you know, compete and to do it in a way that's going to be affordable. In an environment where we're likely to have constrained budgets for national security investments, so those are decision making and and you know affordability are really kind of two touchstones we're going to apply as we look at defense concepts and their relationship to new technology.
0: I'm glad you brought up the decision making there because you guys also brought up um, you know the OODA loop and John Boyd a, a few times in your papers, and you know I couldn't agree with you more. It's not necessarily just like what kind of signals um, intelligence are we getting. But it's like, how do we create concepts that you know move us forward? And it's and John Boyd is really saying the decision cycle is what leads to survival, right? It's you know the crucial aspect of how we survive in a in a dynamic and changing world. And I just love you know destruction and creation and all of his other slides. You know, some people have some problems with it because. You know, it's kind of short and you can read in a lot of stuff that might not have been there. But Destruction and Creation is just something like I could read it every year and I feel like I get something new out of it because I'm always learning about Girdle and and Heisenberg and Entropy. There's just so much that was built into that essay and just how we create these uh, decision models that we break them down into their constituent parts and build them back up again in an empirical manner. I just think like that whole framework which is starting, to, especially in the Marine Corps, but the rest of the government uh, or in the Department of Defense, is starting to creep into the operation side. How do we bring this into the defense management side and acquisition? Because I think technology, just like warfare, there's the fog of war. There's a fog of technology. We don't know necessarily what's going to be best in a few years from now. The thing that seems crazy might work out really well, or more likely the crazy thing won't work, but you, you have to try them out, right? And so... You know, I, w- I would really like to bring in this decision cycle and more of the, you know, ability to handle ambiguity into the defense acquisition side. Did you guys want to respond to that real quick before we finish up? Sure. I'll respond
2: broadly first, which, which is to note that, uh, yeah, the very approach that we have to acquisition can be an element in, in our strategic arsenal, right? We can, we can structure that uh, in a lot of different ways. You know, we can, we can structure that to accommodate an uncertain future, or we can structure that, you know, around what we think is the most probable, uh, a most probable event, or maybe our worst fear. And there's a lot that you can get out of that because even your approach to acquisition, your approach to how you plan that out, your approach to how you budget affects how your adversary thinks. It affects how they make their own decisions. It affects how they spend money. And it really is, it's, it's a critical tool. It's not just about taking, taking our, our new set of processes, our, our new agile acquisition framework and executing that well. It's about really thinking holistically about our national security aims and cascading that across, across uh, our processes as well as our actions.
1: Yeah, and if decision-making is the key element where we're competing with our our adversaries, one way that you afford yourself more decision-making space is by affording yourself more optionality. And so how we do that is you've got to build a force that's got the ability to compose itself like we talked about with Mosaic Warfare in more different ways. And so how you build the force has an implication for how many options are going to be available to a future commander that's out there working in some, you know, combatant command dealing with uh, a Chinese or Russian or whoever threat. And if you've constrained yourself to so much by virtue of how you've designed the force, that future commander's only got one or two ways to deal with a problem. An adversary will know that and can, you know, be able to prepare countermeasures in advance. So this whole idea, it reaches all the way back to the strategic of time scale of of how do you design the force to afford you, yourself the most options possible when you get out there to the tactical time scale?
0: I think optionality is a really good theme for this uh, podcast. Brian Clark, Dan Pat, thanks for joining me on the Acquisition Talk podcast. Thank you so Thank much, Eric. You. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.